Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning is from Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 17. You shall not murder. This is the sixth command of the Ten Commandments, and it is important to recognize that the ordering the Ten Commandments by God was not at all random. There is a hierarchy that he has delineated in the commandments. Our right worship of God and obedience to him should be our first priority. He is our Lord and our highest authority. Therefore, the first four commandments govern our relationship to him. The fifth commandment then instructs us on how we are to treat our earthly authority. We must honor our parents. The remaining five commandments then deal with our relationship to one another. The placement of you shall not murder as the first of these last five commandments was intentional. Whether we do not commit adultery or lie or steal or covet depends on whether or not we first uphold the sanctity of life. In addition, we cannot properly worship God, obeying the first four commandments, if we do not value his greatest creation, mankind. We cannot honor God but disregard, have a disregard for the life of those created in his image. We cannot love God but hate his people. That is why the sum of the commandments is to love God and love your neighbor. The opposite of love is hate, and the Lord clearly teaches, as we have recently studied in the Sermon on the Mount, that hatred of our neighbor is tantamount to murder. It is not enough to not kill anyone. We break the sixth commandment when we hate, whether we actually follow that hatred all the way to murder or not. The Apostle John reminds us of this truth in his first epistle. 1 John 3, verse 11 and 12 says, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. In verse 15, he, whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Life is a miracle. This is a fact that should not be hard for anyone to accept. Two single cells coming together to form one cell that then divides, two cells, then four, then eight, then sixteen, until a full, living human being is formed. This is truly a miracle. Then for that living being to be delivered safely into the world, completely helpless and dependent on his parents, and grow to an adult capable of loving and working and creating and worshiping his creator, continues that miracle. We all know this. We know that life is a miracle and precious to God. We know that abortion is murder. We know that to hate is to commit murder and to be guilty of breaking the sixth commandment. We all know this and yet we struggle with not hating. We struggle with not loving ourselves more than our neighbor. How can this be? Because while we are still on this earth, we are still in this flesh. Therefore, we still struggle with sin. In Romans 7:23, Paul says, But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Sin is still within us. It is also still all around us. Other people hurt us and do things we don't want them to do. They lie and steal and cause us both emotional and physical pain. And our response to such people all too often is hateful. 
But it won't always be this way. We know the end of the story. Love triumphs over hate. And God has put that victorious love in our hearts. He is helping us to love in the midst of our sin and in the midst of the sin of others. And His merciful love, when we confess our sins, covers all the times we have ever hated another person. Let us then go to Him now. If you are willing and able, please kneel with me as we confess our sins to God. mentioned in chapter 11, more time and ink is spent on Abraham than any other. So Abraham is a foundational person. Abraham is a tremendously important man of faith in the Bible. Think about how significant he is if you think about scriptures and how often Abraham is mentioned over and over and over again, he is mentioned. He is called the father of all who, who believe by Paul in Romans 4.11. So he's important as the father to all people who have faith in the true triune God. In Genesis, Abraham takes up 13 of the 50 chapters, that's a significant portion of Genesis. Several times over the course of his lifetime, God, we see in Genesis, meets with him and covenants with him. Abraham figures prominently in Romans as well. Paul first saying that all are sinners, there is none righteous, none who does good, and all of those things, and in chapter 3, uh, in chapter three, 3, and then in chapter 4, he follows that up by the example of Abraham, who believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So he's tied there with that faith coming out of darkness. Paul also significantly speaks of Abraham in Galatians, and Stephen, as well, in his martyrdom at Acts 7, begins with the life of God's calling and the faith of Abraham in following him. And then think of how often the Pharisees, in talking to Jesus, said, we are sons of Abraham. And they were constantly appealing as sons of Abraham, being his descendants, children of Abraham, when talking to Jesus. And they used the fact that they were from him to make their case against Jesus, which is interesting. Indeed, Abraham is tremendously significant. So let's look at his life of faith and what he can teach us. And he is a great example of faith, uh, a like faith that we really need to emulate. So who was Abraham, and what are the facts of his life first? First, God called Abraham while in the land of Ur of the Chaldeans to come out of this idolatrous, pagan society that he found himself in. And he called him, called Abraham to go to a land that he would show him. But Abraham had to leave family and friends behind to do so. Much like we would if we were to be moving. What this meant was that God was calling him to depart from the familiar. Calling him to depart from the familiar to leave by faith those who were idolaters. Now to understand the setting and time frame of Abraham, if we take seriously the genealogies given in scripture, Abraham would have been a young man late in the life of Noah and Shem. I'll just let that sink in a little bit. <laughs> he would have been a young man late in the life of Noah and Shem. He may very well have spoken to these men. In fact, 
if you look at the Jewish writings um, and all of those things, they, they affirm that. Uh, Abraham sat at the feet of Shem. And uh, so, that's all. <laughs> Just off the record. Um, so, he would have also been around while Nimrod was still king of Babel. They think of, you know, chapter 10 and 11 in, in Genesis. So he was around while Nimrod was still king of Babel in the land of Shinar. Uh, Ur was in the same region of Shinar. And Ur was a thriving city of its time. You remember all the trouble that Nimrod call, caused, right? Tower of Babel, you know, some of that kind of stuff, right? So Nimrod caused, caused all sorts of trouble for the people at this time. He was the infamous founder of the Tower of Babel and spread um, the ancient Babylonian mystery religions around the world, the snake worship, moon worship, and all of those things. And we see evidence of all of those things going around the world. No matter where you go, you find those things. Asia, South America, Central America, Europe, all of those things. Those are all stemming out of Babel, Babylon, ancient Babylon. So this is the society that Abraham grew up in. Abraham was probably after the Tower of Babel incident, but still fresh in the memory of the people around him. And note how little time it took for man to digress into wickedness again after the flood. You think, here's God, he floods the whole world. You think, maybe we should learn something from this, right? Maybe we should pay attention to what God is doing. But by the time that Abraham's around, ten generations after Noah, Abraham's father is called by Joshua, Joshua 24, an idolater. Ten generations later, and people are engaged once again in tremendous idolatry. And so God was calling him to go out of this land of idolatry and paganism and moon worship and snake worship and go to a different place that he would show him so he could raise his children, promised to him, in a different way. And he wasn't called to go to Canaan to become a Canaanite, because they were suffering with the same problems. After the dispersal at the Tower of Babel, they went out, right, bringing the religion of Babylon, and the Canaanites were right in the midst of that. But eventually, because he wasn't called to be a Canaanite, eventually he was led to that land and was called to be a stranger, an alien, a sojourner in that land. And the implication was that Abraham was to raise his family separate from the idolatrous culture that he found there, to reject the idolatry, to be a stranger and a foreigner, a sojourner in that land. And we're called to do the same. Now we need to understand that we ourselves are in a war. We're in a war right now, a battle for our souls and the souls of our children. We are. We need to understand that. Just like Abraham, it isn't a battle where we use carnal weapons. We're not going out with machine guns and mowing down people who don't believe just like us. But it's a spiritual battle, a battle where we need to man up and be faithful and willing to lose our lives for the sake of the gospel. I'd like to read a few things, a few statistics here, um, so bear with me a little bit. By all reports, the Christian faith is not doing well in the Western world. In just the last generation, more than one quarter of American adults, 28%,
have left the faith in which they were raised in favor of another religion or no religion at all. 28% of American adults have left in favor of another religion or no religion at all. They've departed from Christianity. 25% of young adults ages 18 to 29 are unaffiliated with any particular religion compared to 8% among those 70 and older. Regular church attendance in the United Kingdom, talking about the Western world, in the United Kingdom dropped from 12% to 5% between 1970 and 2012, while the average age of the church attendance rose from 38 to 58. So it's getting older. The young people aren't coming in. At the same time, the dominant Christian denomination in the United Kingdom endorsed homosexual weddings and the ordination of female bishops. Church attendance in America has dropped off from 55% for the silent generation, that's the World War II generation, to 18% for the millennial generation. So 55% for those who went through World War II, that generation, down to 18% for the millennials, that's 16 to 35 year olds, according to the Pew Research. A recent poll conducted by the Barna Group found that only one half of a percent of American young people ages 18 to 25 hold a Christian worldview. Yikes. Half percent of people from 18 to 25 hold a Christian worldview as compared to 14% in the previous generation. Incredibly, this amounts to a 96% apostasy rate in a single generation. Assuming that a belief in absolutes is fundamental to a Christian orthodoxy. If that's not all, 80% of the kids who grew up in Christian homes that go to college, Christian or secular, get that, Christian or secular, 80% of the kids who grew up in Christian homes that go to college, Christian or secular, abandon the faith. 75% of Christian young people leave the faith after high school. Sexual sin is rampant in our nation. 64% of women ages 16 to 35 will have a child out of wedlock right now. 64% of women ages 16 to 35, that's the millennial generation, will have a child out of wedlock. 65% of those, 64%, will never marry and will live below the poverty level. This is up from 6% in 1960. And get this, as high as, that's just our culture, as high as 60% of women getting abortions identify themselves as evangelicals. Porn is a common problem, even for many pastors, perhaps as high as 50 to 60% struggle with it. Pornography, those are pastors. The stats are even higher in the pews. 50% of Christian men and 20% of women say they're addicted to pornography. Isn't that incredible? 50% of Christian men, 70% of Christian women say they're addicted to pornography. That's idolatry. Addiction is idolatry. The church needs to wake up in the light. Do we think that there's not a problem? There's not a war out there? We are at war now. 
for the spiritual souls of our children and ourselves. We need to wake up in the light and repent and call people to repentance. We're living in an idolatrous nation, but living like the idolaters, as these stats show, rather than separate from them, rather than strangers and sojourners and aliens, we're living like them. Like the society Abraham was living in, we live in a pagan, idolatrous nation that is apostate. You see, at one time, this nation could claim to be a Christian nation. Its roots were Christian. They were. (laughs) And we are apostatizing from that. We, too, are called by God not to be Canaanites. Not to be Canaanites, but are called to believe God and follow Him and to teach our children to do likewise. And it's okay to be strangers and aliens distinct from the idolatrous nation around us. It's okay. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So here's the text. text opens, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. The first thing is that God called Abraham, and what did he do? What did he do? God called Abraham, and what did Abraham do? He obeyed God. He heard God, he heard his word, and he obeyed. But here's the kicker. He didn't know where he was going. Did he? He didn't know where he was going. He didn't know where God was sending him. But by faith he went. That's called walking by faith and not by sight, right? Walking by faith, not by sight. Abraham is exhibiting the very definition of faith that we learn here in Hebrews, the same chapter, Hebrews 11.1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Right? That was Abraham. He hasn't seen this land. God hadn't bring a photo album and shown pictures and say, here's where you're going. When you find this, this is... No, he just sent him, and he said, go, and I will show you where you are to go, and Abraham obeyed. Abraham's faith acts. He acted in response to God's call. God's initiative and calling. Abraham's saved, not because he was something special, not because he pulled himself up by his bootstraps or anything like that, but by God's sovereign grace and election, he called Abraham, and he said, go, And Abraham, with a changed heart, went. He was called to go out, to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance, but he had to go from somewhere. And again, here's what Joshua says about the land that Abraham left. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river, led him throughout all the land of Canaan, and multiplied his descendants, and gave him Isaac. Abraham was just like us, just like everyone. See, Romans 3, 11 and 12 applies to him too. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who does good. There is none who seeks after God. 
That, that applies to Abraham too. Abraham, Abraham was part of the nun. <laughs> He's part of that nun. But see, God called him and gave him a place to go, and he went. He had no long-range plan, no five-year plan or a ten-year plan. He just met God and went in obedience to what God told him. And because of that obedience, James calls him the friend of God. He was the friend of God. Now, wouldn't you like that to be said of you? I am the friend of God. Well, you are. In Christ, we are all friends of God. This was a change of life for Abraham. A change of a comfortable life. You see, Ur was a happening city. It was one of the great cities of the time. It would be like, you know, New York or Chicago or Los Angeles or San Francisco. You know, one of these big towns, Hollywood. It was one of those types of cities. It was a memorable city. It was a comfortable life and all of that that he had. But he was called to go out from that. You know, and we, we often think, right? Like, this is, what are you doing, Abraham? This is, this is a good place to have some cultural influence. Right? It's a good place to, to really affect the culture that you're in. Why would you want to go? You should stay in that pagan, idolatrous culture. Alright? But what does he do? God calls him to go. To go out of that happening place. And as he was packing his bags, what did his friends and neighbors and relatives think? Hey, where, where are you going, Abraham? Um, I, I don't know. <laughs> right? I... Sarah, his wife, right? What are we doing, Abraham? Well, God told us to go, and we're going. Well, where? I don't know. You know, they may have thought he'd lost his mind. But what's different about that today? Right? We, we hear the same thing. Why are you going to church on Sunday? Why don't you sleep in? Isn't it a lot better? Why don't you just take your time, sleep in, be much better? Or why don't you go and, and get involved in some other thing that happens on Sunday morning? It's amazing how much stuff happens on Sundays these days, right? It takes away from our time with the Lord if we let it. Why are you going, Abraham? Why are you going to church? Why are you going to where you're going? Why are you hanging out with those other people? We can hear things like, hey, why don't you look at that beautiful girl over there? Why don't you wear these immodest clothes just like everybody else? Why are you homeschooling your kids? I mean, you don't have time for yourself then. It's much easier just to stick them in school and then you can have time for yourself. The call of faith is followed by the life of faith. The call of faith is, is followed by the life of faith. Heart and hand. Credenda agenda. I've met God and I'm following Him and this is what God's Word says. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to walk as God tells me to walk. I'm going to be faithful unto Him. No matter if I look like a weirdo or not. 
God's word says this. The life of faith begins when God reveals himself to us. And where do we see God revealing himself? We see him revealing himself in the preached word. We see him revealing himself in the reading of God's word, in the life of other Christians speaking truth to us. That's why it's so important to break bread together and be together. So we can speak truth into each other's lives. And these things change people, they change hearts, and we're called to a different walk, to be strangers and aliens. And as we have people over and things like that, their lives will be affected. They'll be changed as they see what it means to be a stranger and an alien. So Abraham went to the land of Canaan, obeying God, but when he arrived, he never saw the promises fulfilled in his lifetime. Think about that. He went and dwelt in the land of promise, but it never actually became his. God told him to go to this place, this place that I will show you, and it never actually becomes Abraham. This is going to be your land. This is the land of promise. But he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, the text says. He lived as a foreigner, an alien, a sojourner there. It's yours, Abraham, but not yet. He wasn't there permanently because he was still dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob. He'd been given two promises by God. Two basic promises. That he would be given land that he would be given this land, and that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Now you think of other guys, like Noah, right? When God said, look, build a boat, I'm going to flood this world, Noah saw it happen, right? He saw the fulfillment of that. But by the end of Abraham's life, he hadn't realized either of the promises, right? He still dwelt as a stranger in the land, and he had only three heirs when he died. But he believed God, and he modeled Hebrews 11.1. He modeled Hebrews 11.1. The substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now Abraham isn't recounted in the secular histories of his day. He wasn't a mighty general. He wasn't a mighty king, he wasn't a great entertainer, he wasn't a pernicious bad guy, or anything like that. All the things that people remember, those are the people that are remembered by the world. Instead, Abraham led a quiet and peaceable life with all men as much as was possible. And here's application for us. We too are called to live as aliens and strangers in this world right now, at this time. Though we are to be those meek who inherit the earth, it's not manifest to us in the present yet, right? We haven't inherited the earth yet. And so it's not manifested to us in the present. And so we need to abide in faith, trusting in the promises that God has given to us of that. That we will one day inherit the earth. Richard Phillips says this, Abraham's experience informs us that the life of faith is not one of receiving all God's promises in tangible form, but rather of believing them in the face of hardship, receiving them by faith, living as Abraham did out of confidence in and reliance on God. From beginning to end, the Christian life is one of faith, not of sight. Abraham was faithful, really, 
if you boil it down to, in the little things. He was faithful in the little things. And that's what made him great. That's what made him greatly to be remembered as a man of faith down to the present because he was faithful in the little things that God gave him to do. Simply obeying God. That's it. You see, we likewise are to be faithful in the little things. We can get distracted by the desire to do great things for the kingdom. We can get distracted by that. Big things, things that are noticed by other Christians, noticed by the world. But if we're not being faithful in the little day-to-day things, we will be humbled by the Lord. You see, history is replete with examples of Christian men being recognized as doing great things for the kingdom of God. Great things for the kingdom of God, only to lose their children, or to commit adultery, or to run off with another woman, or all manner of things like that. First and foremost, we need to be faithful in the little things. Loving our wives, loving our husbands, raising our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, loving each other in the local congregation, those little things. If we don't, and if we're not faithful in these little things, well, we're going to be like those statistics at the beginning. That's the thing. And when we find ourselves going that way, the response is repentance. To turn back to God, to trust Him, to remind ourselves that we are to be faithful here and now. And these small things, these little things that seem maybe insignificant to us, but are the foundation for greater faithfulness. Finally, Abraham had eyes of faith that looked forward to the fulfillment of the promises ultimately in the future. See in verse 10, For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Abraham had insight to see ahead to the fulfillment of the promises God made to him. He he had enough foresight to see ahead a city, a permanent city with deep foundations built and made by God. And we see that city descending from heaven in Revelation 21.10, which is identified to John by the angel as the bride, the lamb's wife of which all who have faith in God are living stones, Peter tells us, being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are that city. We will be that city. Abraham looked forward to this, not contenting himself with the passing pleasures and offerings of the world, but left that behind. He left Ur behind. He had all of those things. And he left them behind, put those things on a lower shelf, and lived with a heart toward the future, while still living a very earthy life, as you see from the text in Genesis. This instructs us as well, to have eyes to the future of what God is doing and building. What what is God doing? He's building. So we see all those statistics and all of that, But that doesn't mean that God is defeated. We talked and read, heard heard the text read today about the sorting out of the wheat and the tares. Those are the things that God is doing. But there's a lot more wheat in the end than there is tares, right? 
So God is building. We need to have an eye to the future of what God is doing. We may not see big and glorious things. We may not see Hollywood stars or a president or a Rhodes Scholar or a huge church come from the midst of Christ Church of Livingston County. But the question is, are you being faithful in these little things here in this humble place? Now, here in your families, in this congregation, being faithful in the little things. Are we dying to ourselves? Dying to ourselves, loving one another more than ourselves, confessing our sins to one another, rejecting envy, the perniciousness of envy, and slander, and covetousness, dwelling faithfully with our spouses, raising our children in the fear and instruction of the Lord. These so-called little things that are unimpressive are truly the heart and life of faith. You are doing good work, the works that God has called you to do when you serve like that, when you live being faithful in the little things. That is what changes hearts. That it shows and demonstrates a changed, humble heart towards Christ. The heart that's truly taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. When we walk faithfully in these ways, seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, then it will all be added unto us, right? But first we are called to obey God's calling in our lives, to dwell in this land faithfully with eyes to the future, to trust in God's future fulfillment of these things. That's living by faith. Trusting what God has in store. Trusting in what God tells us to do right now. And trusting in God that He is working all things together for good. For those who love Him, who are called according to His commandments. Abraham wasn't perfect. He too sinned, as we see in Scripture. He too, and you can see that, can't you? In the life of Abraham. He wasn't like this perfect, great guy that did everything right, right? He had he had sins, he had foibles, he had areas that he needed to repent of, right? He too needed God's salvation. He too needed God's calling upon his life. But his life was one of steady upward progression and faithfulness. You can see that if you we don't have time to go through all the texts of Genesis, but look at where Abraham started it in, in chapter eleven of Genesis and then twelve and then see where he progressed by the end. You can see his faith growing. His life was one of steady upward progression and faithfulness. That's where we need to be too. But it all begins here with understanding what Christ did in giving us this table. This table is a demonstration of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of what Christ has done. The good news that Christ died for us, his body was broken for us, his blood shed on our behalf, and that has changed us so that we might live unto him. Christ. Christ in us. That gospel changes hearts and lives, without which we would not be able to walk in these ways at all. If we didn't have Christ, how could we ever expect to walk faithfully? Right? If we didn't have a changed heart, how could we walk faithfully? We couldn't. That's the good news. And see, Abraham looked forward to the promises that were given to him in Christ. Christ intervenes in our lives, calls us to come to him by faith 
in him because he is the author and perfecter of faith. He is the one that has begun a good work in you and will see it to completion. That's the joy of it all. And so in the midst of all these circumstances, and we see these statistics, and we see that we have a duty to do with our children and with our own faithfulness, don't take your eyes off Jesus. He's the one who's the author and perfecter of the faith. He's the one that will make those stats change. Let's pray. here to the Lord's table. He invites us to come to his table. This is the same God that called Abraham. The same God that called Abraham to leave Ur of the Chaldees, to go out from that place to a land flowing with milk and honey one day, is the same God that calls us to come into his presence as well. To hear his word proclaimed to us, Rejoice in it, to be glad in it, to be thankful for the fact that Christ has come and visited us here in this place so that we might know him and believe him, rest in him, and be fed by him. This is the joy of the Lord. And this table is for all who are baptized and under the authority of Christ and his body, the church. By eating the bread and drinking the wine with us, you are acknowledging that you are a sinner without hope except in the sovereign mercy of God that you are trusting in Christ Jesus alone for salvation. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website. ChristKirkMI.com. That's C H R I S T K I R K M I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.